today, we're talking about the road to nowhere, reimagining the English North-South divide. Saskia, uh, I'm doing my PhD here in human geography. Feel free to follow me on Twitter. So uh, first, I'm going to talk a little bit about what my research is going to look like. And my topic is people from the north of England who live in London. Following that, I'm going to talk a little bit about Englishness and how debates about Englishness played out in the Brexit referendum and the kind of aftermath. And in that context, I'm going to talk about David Goodhart, whose contribution to Brexit uh, was this book, The Road to Somewhere, which I argue is one of Gilroy's elaborate denials of racism. And then I'm going to talk about why I think we need to reimagine the English North-South divide. So, as I said, my research is on Northerners in London, and uh, my questions around kind of how the stigmatisation of the North and uh, Northern identities and the dominance of London in national life affects people's migration experience and their own identities um, and plays into their kind of understandings of Englishness and their concept of being at home uh, both in London, within you know, where they've originated from in the North and within the nation itself um, and where they draw kind of boundaries of those places. So, this is Paul Gilroy. And uh, he said in a talk he gave in 2006, I just feel like it's really worth looking up because he just, when you read it, you're like, oh, he knew Brexit was going to happen. Um, so he's written, huge amounts of political energy have been expended on elaborate denials of the fact that racism is historically or politically significant as such, and in opposing the idea that horrible racism can be connected in any way to healthy nationalism and robust patriotism. So I think that you can really view the Brexit debates within this context, you know, the campaigns and what happened afterwards. So if you remember, this is my kind of unholy trinity of Brexit causes. So, you know, we had lots of kind of rhetoric around migrants, migration as being, like, as being a threat to Englishness. So there was the kind of take back control slogan. Um, we had David Cameron, even though he was campaigning for Remain. I'm not sure people, it's hard to take him seriously because, you know, he had all this stuff about, like, swarms of migrants, um, particularly in reference to the refugee crisis. Barrage also had the Breaking Point poster, which, you know, is kind of, like, whipping up fears about sort of Islam as, like, a war on British values, English culture, all that kind of stuff. So this kind of uh, viewing migration as an invasion that we should be afraid of kind of brown incomers um, and racialized migrants. The sort of academic context I'm putting this in is um, Gilroy's theory of post-colonial melancholia, which is the idea that with the kind of loss of empire uh, during the 20th century, we haven't really come to terms with Britain's kind of loss of status in the world, or like the trauma of losing the colonies, um, or like our part in all the kind of brutalities that went on. And because of that, we're sort of repressing it, and it comes out in sort of unexpectedly like unplanned ways. And one of these ways is the kind of hatred of migrants, particularly, you know, as we've seen in kind of the Windrush scandal that's happened over the past week, this sort of viewing of post-colonial migrants or people who came over as British citizens as um, kind of bearing the burden of being the reminder of that trauma, of the loss of um, the colonies. And so all that kind of anger and pain gets projected onto this group of people who then get racialised as kind of like not British, even though many of them came with British passports. And then as 
different waves of migration have come in. Uh, each group gets kind of racialized in a kind of quite similar ways. So even kind of white migrants, like who might come from Romania or somewhere like that, get racialized as Eastern Europeans. And Birdie and McGeever have written about this, how this racialized English nationalism played out in the Brexit debate with kind of Englishness positioned as like only for white people. You know, everyone else is kind of like either at the peripheries of that or like literally excluded from it. And alongside this discourse, we had lots about kind of the white working classes being left behind, sort of politics of white resentment, which Ron Ware's written about, that, you know, white working class people have a lot to be angry about because all anyone cares about now is migrants, like ethnic minorities and stuff like that. Whereas she argues, you know, it's actually... And like she's written this before austerity, in the context of austerity, it's uh, like black and brown people who suffer the most because of cuts, um, and also it precludes a kind of uh, politics of working class solidarity because it's saying there are white working class people and that there are the ethnic minorities. And as Akwegu Emajulu says, who's pictured there, I need to kind of detox to all the white men. Um, she says the working white working class is being held hostage in their own country by migrants, and this is how white victimhood was sort of spun within the Brexit debate. So, within all of this, we have David Goodhart, who is an old Etonian who works for think tanks, and he founded Prospect Magazine, which is sort of like a blue labour um, magazine, online magazine, and. Uh, I think we should be worried about how influential he is. Um, the British Dream, which she wrote in 2013, is just a diatribe against migrants and migration and saying how you know we're ruining this country. And you know he does this kind of study where he goes to um, Bradford and he interviews lots of Muslims living in Bradford and then kind of says you know it's their fault that they're not integrating and um, this is the problem with Britain today. And you might not have heard it over all the coughing, but Theresa May mentioned the British Dream quite a few times in her conference speech in 2017, and she also mentioned the. He talks about in um, the roads somewhere the idea of like citizens of the world, which was kind of her infamous phrase from her conference speech in 2016. So yeah, he gets everywhere. If you go to any talk on Brexit by an academic, his name always crops up, and so I think it's worth exploring his ideas a bit further. So. He basically, it's quite a long book considering the main message is it's the London Metropolitan League versus the white working class, which you saw all over the media. Um, particularly, you know, Sunderland was the first to return their Brexit vote. And um, everyone said, oh, you know, it's stupid, feckless Northerners. Like, they don't know what the EU's done for them. Uh, whereas, you know, the London Metropolitan League didn't see this coming because they're just in their own bubble. And um, those two groups very much pitted against each other. So, as you can see, he calls it Brexit, the populist revolt. So this is the Brexit as a revolt of the white working class. As David mentioned this morning, you know, there's plenty of research which shows that actually it was the southern middle classes who swung the Brexit vote and voted up overwhelmingly for Brexit. And although lots of working class people voted for Brexit too, if they had voted Remain, we would still have left, if that makes sense. So... His great thesis, which works very well in the soundbite, is that you know Britain is now divided into anywheres and somewheres with a group of in-betweeners to whom he pays absolutely no attention in the book. Um, 
as you can see, in between still make up a quarter of the population, but basically this is a division between people who are pro-immigration and people who are anti-immigration. And uh, he has devised this from um, a British Social Attitude Survey question from 2013, which basically asked people how strongly they feel about getting rid of migrants. So I'm not sure, yeah, I'm not sure methodologically how well it stands up, but that's, this is like what the whole book is about. Starting from that one question in a survey, he then groups together, so these are the kind of characteristics of anywheres. They're wealthy, they're educated residential universities, which is important because it means they've moved away from home. Uh, they're pursuing careers in London, and then they predominate amongst decision makers and opinion formers, which ironically, he is probably the most, <laughs> like, he is more than anyone the decision maker and opinion formers. Uh, although he has a real fearless honour about academics, so I think the antagonism is kind of mutual. And they have a kind of liberal and progressive politics. And uh, within this ideology of progressive individualism, uh, anywhere as a pro-immigration, European integration, human rights legislation, he really has a problem with human rights, uh, meritocracy, equality, higher education, and gay marriage. He goes on and on about how anywhere's love gay marriage. They welcome change. They prefer ethnic minorities to the white British majority. I don't really know how he got that from a survey on social attitudes, but anyway. And then, yeah, so he says explicitly, these are the citizens of the world. Um, I think this book was published after Theresa May's speech. So I don't know if he developed the phrase, but he's certainly using it. On the other hand, somewheres are uh, an ordinary citizen, they're poorer, they live within a short distance of where they lived when they were foreseen, and they kind of lost their familiar places and cultures due to multiculturalism and globalisation. And um, he mentions, you know, that at the core there's an older group of white working class men who've been left behind. So within this ideology of decent populism, which I think is his phrase, that I'm not sure that anyone else uses it, you know, they're conservative, communitarian, only a few bigots and xenophobes, so don't worry too much about that. And although they dislike immigration, multiculturalism, and change, apparently women's rights, minority rights, are as natural as the air they breathe, um, which is a quote. And you know, they love free expression and consumerism and individual choice. I'm not sure how that ties into the whole communitarian thing, but it's quite a contradictory set of values. Anyway, so I this is. He wrote an article when this book came out called White Self-Interest is Not the Same Thing as Racism, which I would argue is the dictionary definition of racism. And he's written loads, like, he wrote this article in 2004 called Too Diverse, which was also in this vein of, you know, like, liberals never talk about how diversity is actually this terrible problem which is ruining society. Brexit's caused by rapidly increasing ethnic diversity. And London is definitively the worst place to live in the UK because of multiculturalism. And he's definitely characterising the North as like the home of white resentment. So, to counter Goodhart's arguments, I would say that London, there are huge inequalities in London, he's not wrong there, but rather than attributing them to multiculturalism, I would say that it's to do with deindustrialization, privatisation, neoliberalism, you know, state-led gentrification. You know, we've all heard about how our cities are being socially cleansed. Um, and this is to do with massive class inequalities. You know, the sort of neoliberal market relies on this underpaid labour force. And at the same time, London plays this hugely disproportionate role in national life. 
and I don't want to go into it now, but if you read Matthew's thing, she talks about how basically the success has come at the expense of the North. So as London's become more about finance, um, or like finance become more dominant in our national economy, the North and its focus on manufacturing has like deliberately been ignored by governments and destroyed by Thatcher, and also by New Labour. Um, so although the North has kind of for a long time been stigmatised as sort of the land of the working class, you know, a lot of the problems with um, unemployment stuff that the North has is to do with kind of deindustrialization and monetarism, which have been government policies for the past sort of 30, 40 years. Um, under New Labour, the North was dependent on the public sector for jobs and tax credits, which means that under austerity, obviously it's a much more vulnerable area for the rollback of the state. And Davies, well, Davies argues that sort of because of this uh, dependency on the state, take back control was a really appealing message for a lot of people in the North. Obviously, it's not just people in the North who voted Brexit, but I think when you think about it in that way, it's really understandable why people from these areas would have voted Brexit. So to conclude, I think David goes far and this kind of rhetoric is really toxic and we need to counter these narratives of Englishness which racialise groups of people. But, you know, there's a possibility here for reimagining the North-South divide, possibly through the searching migration experience of Northerners living in London. So, yeah, thank you. the loss of like industry and manufacturing has had a catastrophic effect for places like Barnsley. It's also the case that you know there are also like Polish and Italian migrants would have faced racism 
but there are also, you know, like Indian works coming over, works from like the Caribbean and stuff, and actually those same civic institutions were incredibly racist towards those workers and excluded them, and so you see the growth of like Indian workers' trade unions to counter that racism. So um, I'd really recommend Birdie's written a book on it called Class and the Racialized Other, and he talks about how those institutions were also exclusionary. I do agree with you that obviously those kinds of working class cultures have been under attack from the government for a long time, but um, I don't think we can look back kind of nostalgically and be like, oh, it was a better time for everyone, because frankly, like, these strands of racism have existed in British society for a long time. Can we just cut it out? Sure. <laughs> yeah. So I see it, yeah, that's a good question. Sorry, for my recording. Where am I defining the North-South divide? I think it's kind of an imagined border. I don't think there's a hard and fast. And I think it's kind of complicated because there's sort of the traditional seven county north, um, which sort of Yorkshire and uh, Cheshire are sort of the bottom of. But I would argue that like, when you move to London, you're like, London perceptions of the North and Northerners perceptions of the North are very different things. And so I think people become sort of Northernized by moving to London. So I think I'm just going to kind of ask people who feel that they are Northern or imagine themselves as a Northern. Because like, I don't know, my mum's from Leicester and she's like, I would definitely see myself as coming from the North. And I'm like, well, it's technically Midlands. But you know, it's, it's, she was like, well, in the Midlands you have that identity. But then when you come down South, everyone's like, it's just the North, isn't it? So, Good question. I think it will become incredibly complicated <laughs> when I start doing the research. I'm really not sure how I'm going to define London yet either, so don't even ask me. <laughs> my research is very simple as well. Great. Um, uh, so, I'll stick with a methodological question, um, as we do this later. So how conscious are you to present a balanced argument? Um, <laughs> your, 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 your position is really clear, yeah. but because I'm struggling with the same thing, I, I describe myself as perhaps more of a sceptical remainder than mm. you seem to be. Um, but, but how, uh, yeah, where do you position Well, in terms of, do you mean in terms of Brexit? Yeah. Um, I think it's kind of complicated. I was that Londoner who was like, oh my god, I can't believe everyone voted leave, this is dreadful. But like, over the past few months, I've definitely started sort of reevaluating my position. I think personally, coming from like a migrant background, and I think what I'm trying to get out in the talk as well is like people of colour have never been allowed to be English and that's not new but I think those things came to the fore a lot in Brexit debates and so I felt incredibly like alienated from like the nation by the Leave vote but I think now I'm trying to come to like a more understanding point of being like well why would you that you know that a lot of it I think was because it was the establishment arguing for Remain, and actually, why would you want to vote for an establishment that has like screwed everyone over for such a long time, particularly from working class backgrounds, or you know? So I would still say I'd vote Remain, but yeah, it's difficult. It's like it is difficult because I think everyone comes from a biased position. I still think David Goodhart, whatever my position on Remain or Leave is, is an awful person. <laughs> like because he has so much power, and because I think there's argument really obscures uh, a lot of things and like you know it wasn't just him like I'm sure you guys saw the stuff on sort of national 
news channels the day after Brexit where they would just go find like the craziest person they could and interview and be like, look, this idiot voted leave and they didn't even know what the debate was about. Like there's a very like patronizing sort of leave thing. Anyway, yeah, I just talked about that for a long time. But basically it's it is complicated and I feel like I've had to sort of re-educate myself to come around to like why people would have voted leave when I don't necessarily agree with them. Thanks, that was extremely Snowball something, obviously. Yeah. Um, Northerners do attract more Northerners. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then I've been doing a lot of just like eavesdropping on people in places <laughs> and being like, where are you from? Um, and most people are pretty happy. I mean, this is just like really informal kind of gauging the research feels. Um, and then, I don't know, I've been thinking about maybe going to like contacting there are lots of like northern football club supporters groups in London and like I can never remember if it's rugby union or league but the northern one league <laughs> <laughs> I don't care um one of those and then someone was like oh you should go to northern soul nights but I don't know if any northerners go to them or if it's just like hipsters so <laughs> we'll see but if you have any ideas yeah no I don't but I you do I've got a few friends Awesome. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. Yeah. I think people will really enjoy being interviewed by you on that topic. I think, yeah, like the, the sense I've got is that people have a lot to say about it but don't yeah. feel like anyone cares, which is always a good place to start because people want to get their like, two cents in. Yeah. So. Oh, for sure, yeah. Thank you, Kent, Saskia. And Thank you. Thank you.